Well, good morning. Uh, we're back in the book of Romans. We're in lesson seven, and I've simply titled the lesson, The Verdict, All Guilty. If you have your notes in front of you, we're in Romans chapter three, verses nine to 20. And uh, we're going to jump in after a brief introduction. So a little bit of... Nice. <laughs> nice. A little bit of whiteboard time. That's going to scare everybody into listening. <laughs> um, all right. You might be new to the class this week. We're in our seventh session, or you might have kind of forgotten where we are in the big picture. Let me do that really quick. Uh, in chapter 1, 1 to um, 15, basically Paul's just introducing the topic of the book, salutation, and saying hello. And then we have been in the section now to 3.9 on the subject of sin. Today we, I'm sorry, to 3.20, I should say. And today we finish up the section on sin, which is that God's court case against the Gentiles, against the moralists, against the Jew. Uh, today's conclusion is, as I've called it, the verdict. Right? The verdict. And so we'll take a look at that today. And then thankfully, though, God's story does not end there for us. And we'll be looking at chapter 3. I think there's uh, 14, I don't know how many verses are in chapter 5. <laughs> to the end. To the end of the end, thank you. <laughs> the end of chapter 5. We'll be looking at the topic of salvation next week and God's solution to this problem. Uh, today, though, God takes us on a journey and explains the backstory of why sin is so terrible. Why sin is so terrible. So let's jump in. God's final verdict. All guilty. Every human being is under the wrath of God. Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Well, there you have it. Two basic points. Number one, no one is better off than anyone else in respect to their standing before God. Jews are not better off than Gentiles, right? What then? Are we better than they? Not at all if we've already charged that both Jews and Gentiles or Greeks are all under sin. And individual Jews and individual Gentiles are not better off than their individual Jews and Gentile neighbors. Not only is the Jewish race not better off than Gentile, but individual Jews and individual Gentiles alike are not better off than the people sitting next to them. Because it says this, we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So number two, everyone is under the power of sin. That is, everyone sins. And everyone is under the penalty of sin. Everyone is without excuse. As has been previously demonstrated by Paul. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Under sin. What does that even mean? Uh, you could say under judgment, that's been clear. They're under the wrath of God. 
But when Paul uses this term under sin, he's talking about not simply sin's individual, but the principle of sin or the law of sin and death, which later in the book of Romans he will unveil for us in chapter 7 and 8, the law of sin and death. He that sins must die. We are all under that law in God's courtroom, and therefore we all must die. We'll die physically, we'll certainly die spiritually, and let me go in through a little more of Paul's introduction. Let's define the word sin. We're all under sin, okay? In simple terms, any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Let me bear down a little bit there. Uh, When we see the moral law, don't think Ten Commandments there. Think Ten Commandments, the Jew. But again, back to the, to the pagan, back to the moralist, their conscience, every one of our consciences gives us at least nine of those commandments constantly. Right? D- don't covet. Don't steal this thing. Don't lie. Don't, don't kill your parents. Or don't kill and donate your parents. Or both. Uh, we know it's wrong to blaspheme God. We know it's wrong. And so that moral law of God in the conscience and the moral law of God written to us, anything which violates those things against the act of it, the attitude, what do we mean by that? Jesus said, it's not just sin if you commit adultery. Jesus says, if you lust in your heart after a man or a woman, you have already committed adultery in your heart. And so the law we found out in the New Testament is even worse for us than we thought. Like, well, I've never, I've never killed anybody. Have you hated anybody, Jesus said? Well, yeah, then you've already murdered them in your heart. And so it got to the point where we could no longer say, like when I grew up Roman Catholic, I never murdered anybody, I never whatever, but you have in your heart. And according to scripture, that's a violation of God's law. And then finally, or nature. Huh? Or nature. This is what Paul's going to get into today. The third aspect of sin. We know that to violate God's law in our acts is wrong. We know in our heart, let's just use that term, in our attitude, our desires, our thinking, either of those is sin when we violate God's law. But also, Paul's going to reveal to us today, it's also our nature. Our nature. That when Adam fell and plunged the human race into sin, our souls died, and we'll talk about that. The whole spirit. But our nature, we are sinners. We don't just sin, we are sinners. And by nature, we are outside of God's perfection. Uh, what does sin mean? It means to fall short, right? We know that that means that, to fall short of the glory of God. We are outside of God's perfections in the way we are, the way we think, and what we do. And therefore, we are subject to God's wrath. We are not who we're supposed to be. We don't do what we're supposed to be. And we don't think or desire what we should. And I say we, because I know most of us are professing Christians in the room. But we always have to remember where we have come from and what God's mercy has been. All right, let me do a quick reminder. And then really the first page today is not a, a reminder of everything, but it's a reflection what Paul has said here. And namely that we are all under sin. Let's remind ourselves what he said about the Gentiles the moralist, and the Jew. 
In Romans 1, 18 to 20, you remember, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are ana apologitos. They are without excuse. And then secondly, the moralist, which are Jews and Gentiles alike, is probably speaking mainly of the Jew here, but it could be the Gentile moralist who lives in Athens, who thinks they're better than everyone. And Paul says in Romans 2, therefore you have no, you are ana apologitos, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. What are we being told here? It's the irony. Once we know that the person across the aisle or the driver next to us on the highway or the person on TV or the person on the internet, once we say, aha, that person is sinning, it makes us more culpable because now we know the standard. Right? I see sin. Mm Mm-hmm. How's that going for you? How's that working in your own life? And Jesus talked about that. You say that you see, he said to the Pharisees. We see. Ah, then you're more culpable. You see. That's part of the deal. That's part of the deal. And no one ever lives up to their own conscience or moral standard, right? We're like, those people are so like me. (laughs) Yeah. Or or that phrase, uh, my sin doesn't look good on you. Right. (laughs) For sure. And then finally, what we looked at last week in review, Paul's uh, final um, court case against the Jews, Romans chapter 2. For all who have sinned without the law, the Gentiles, will also perish without the law. They don't get in just because they don't have the law. And all who have sinned under the law, oh, they're good, right? They will be judged by the law. You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. So let me stop here, because this, this, this point that we're going to turn on is, is going to be massive, super massive. We all know, having just been through the first three chapters, essentially, of Romans, that everybody's a sinner, nobody's getting out of this, And our personal sins are going to be on trial, and we will all fall short of the glory of God. But Paul's now going to introduce a topic by virtue of quoting a bunch of scriptures of the Old Testament to prove that we are not just people who sin, but that we are sinners. And that our sin nature is irreconcilable to God, not only spiritually by getting morally right with God, but that our sin nature prohibits us from doing anything that either gains merit or comes to believe in God without a supernatural work of God. Paul is setting up the rest of the book. I want to say this again. Salvation, if you just go to the next verse 321, and you talk about salvation, God's offer of free grace. 
and you don't understand these next 11 or 12 verses, you will think, possibly, that faith is something that you just produce. But what Paul will now do to us is say, yes, all you are bad sinners. And guess what? You cannot fix that without God. Well, yeah, I just believe in Jesus. No, you don't want to. Paul's now going to introduce a paradox for us. He's going to explain to us that nobody can get saved. And then say, some people get saved. Nobody can get saved. Some of you are going to get saved. And then we have the paradox, which is, how does that happen? And God's explanation of it, it's actually in chapters 9 to 11. But we're going to kind of dangle that today. So man has a worse problem than their individual sin. What is that? Next page. The total inability of man, the doctrine of depravity. Let me read verses 10 to 20, and then let's dive in. As it is written, so Paul tells you that what he's now going to do is quote the Old Testament. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. To that together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may, be become, may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. I'm going to start at the beginning, or at the end of that. Paul's point that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, some of you have had an MRI in your life, okay? Or maybe a CAT scan or an ultrasound, or an x-ray, some such thing that's diagnostic, right? So you go in, you schedule the appointment, you go in, and if it's an MRI, you're scared the whole time, all right? Is this going to take parts of my body out, or what about that aluminum thing in my knee? Oh, no, it doesn't take aluminum yet, my today, okay? You know what I'm saying. But you go in for a diagnostic test, and if you go in thinking that the test at the end is going to say, you're the healthiest human being who's ever been in here, it's going to affirm your healthiness. But that's not what the test does. The test is simply looking for damage or whatever. It can tell you there's no cartilage damage. It can tell you there's no broken bone. But it can't tell you that you're a wonderful person or it can't tell you you're super healthy. It doesn't rate your healthiness. It simply tells you what it sees. The law, Paul says, is no pathway to righteousness. The law will not look at you. When you look into the law, it's not a mirror that reflects back wonderfulness. 
The, the law is looking for stuff. And it's looking to the heart saying, oh man, you got a heart problem. You've got this. The only thing the law can do is the knowledge of sin. The only thing the law does is produce knowledge that you're a sinner. It shows you where the MRI or the CAT scan or whatever shows you. It does not tell you you're good because we're not. But it always tells you how bad you really are. So in the box to the right, what I've done is simply broken down Paul's measured words here for our thinking. What is Paul really saying here? He's saying these things. Our standing before God, in verse 10. There are none righteous, not even one. This word righteous here is the same word we're going to use for justified. Justified. Uh, There's no one before God in their standing who's justified before God. No one. Yeah, but what about the super religious people? No one. No one is before God has a standing in which they can stand justified. But then Paul says, your problem also is your minds. There's not one person who's ever lived who understands. You're like, nah, nah, see Dave, I did. (laughs) I was that person. See, I studied cults and religions. And then I really studied the world stuff and I read the Bible. And then I read apologetic material. And then I really deepened it and I took courses on different world religions and things, comparative religion. And, you know, after all my searching and looking for God, I finally figured it out that it was Jesus was God and the cross was real and that was true. I did that. The apostle disagrees with you. It is true that you believed, right? But the story has to, the origin story has to be the story he filmed. Our origin story usually is the superhero story. Oh, I was searching for God. <laughs> My family's very religious. Attend to church all the time. <laughs> yeah, you're like, nope. Our origin stories get better as they go along. All right? When we got saved, we know the real origin story. I was a slob, and I can't believe I got saved. Okay? But 30 years later, when we're given a testimony, you know, I was reading my Bible. I was doing this. No, you weren't. No, no, you weren't doing anything. All right? Paul is telling us the origin story for all of us. There are nobody righteous, and you did not understand. And no one understands. Then how do you come to understand? Ah, Paul says, I have a whole book full of stuff to tell you about. No one understands. I'm going to go back. But if we explain it to them better, you didn't explain it well enough. That's why they didn't believe. No, they don't understand. Thirdly, Paul says, there's none who seeks for God. What about that earnest Buddhist monk up in the mountains in the Himalayas? searching, searching. Yeah, looking on their inside and thinking they're a God. No one is seeking God in his glory. There goes the secret churches. Yeah, it's a a bummer. No seeker services in. No one is seeking. Why did I put the word affections here? Because you search for what you love. Right? You like ice cream? You're on the internet going, best ice cream in Columbia. (laughs) Right? 
Crab cakes, best crab cakes in Columbia. Right? Best church, Hope Bible Church. <laughs> no one's righteous. No one gets it. And no one's out there seeking the glory of God. They may be seeking religion, but religion only tells them they're okay. Fourthly, our plans. We've all turned aside. This, this coalesces with Isaiah. We're all like sheep who've gone astray. Paul's, Paul's quoting Psalms in this part. He's quoting Psalm 14 and 53 and some other Psalms. But he's noting what the Old Testament has already said. We're all like sheep who've gone astray. We've all turned aside. And our merit, they have become useless. That's God's valuation of our merit cup we talked about last week. Everyone to God is useless. No, no. He saved me because I was going to add benefit. God brought me into the kingdom because I'm one of the people like, man, once they get that guy in the church. (laughs) Yeah, they're going to have to close it down. (laughs) Once we got you, we were kind of afraid, actually. All right. (laughs) All right. Our merit, we have become useless to God. Our works, none who does good. I was going to get on good works. (laughs) Paul says your standing of righteousness is not there. And you can't even do good before God. Now, let me stop. That doesn't mean some people aren't doing good things and other people are not doing bad things. That doesn't negate the idea of good and evil, i.e., people can still do good things. We're talking about merit before God and that no work of righteousness can gain merit or be put in the cup of merit for God to be impressed with. But that doesn't mean in God's common grace that even unbelievers do better things and worse things. But they have no merit before God, and they don't help in any way or shape. Okay. Our words. Oh, yeah. But see, I was a person who really... No, you weren't. Their throat, their tongues, their lips, their mouth. Paul says, any part of the organ of you talking is not a good idea. (laughs) Our walk, their feet are swift to shed blood. Paul's point here, of course, is the lifestyle, the walk. They are out there doing stuff that is quick to disobey God's law. And our wake, I put it. I don't always like to put W's and P's and Q's, but as I got on a roll when I was working on this, I was like, wake, it comes behind you. You're wakeboarding or whatever. Our legacy, our wake is destruction and misery are in their paths. That doesn't mean they're up ahead of you. That might sound like you're going to hell there. But he's just said your feet are out on the path killing. And now the wake of that is that you're leaving misery and destruction wherever you go. But I'm a good person. I left, I left a real impression on my generation. <laughs> yeah, you did. Of sin. I tried yesterday to think of the most godly person I ever met. And it was me. <laughs> you know, in Camelot, you know, c'est moi, c'est moi. Okay, anyway, it's me. Who's the most godliest man alive? But I tried to think of the most godly person I ever met. And I thought of that person. Generally speaking, I think of one person comes to mind when I think of that. You think about it there, too. Who's the most godly person 
that you ever met. Don't, don't tell me. <laughs> and when I think of that person, then I, what I did then was to say, were they perfect? No. What do I know about them? Well, I'm thinking of a pastor that I sat under. He was the most godly man I ever met. But I also know the whole story. And it's that very thing. In our wakes, as Christians, we can leave behind a wonderful legacy. But the unbeliever, even the best unbeliever, will live awake, leave a wake of sin behind them. And you often hear that story later. Great painter, but their family was destroyed. Great, but this was destroyed. And then our way, the path of peace they have not known. The unbeliever is not on the path of peace because they're not on the path of life. And then our worldview no fear of God before their eyes. That's the summary, right? Before their eyes, how they look at the world. Uh, the book of Proverbs, really, Paul's just summarizing the book of Proverbs here. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. Proverbs uses all three of those terms. Paul's summary of everyone ever born is, they have no fear of God. I should not say no fear. They don't have meritorious fear of God. They don't have fear of God that's understanding God in truth. And they serve a God of their understanding, which is always faulty given our fault. Even the most religious person. Well, let's close in prayer. I hope you feel good about yourself. (laughs) This was every single one of us before we knew Jesus Christ. I'm going to review in a very quick way. Our minds, our affections, our plans, our merit, our works, our words, our walk, our wake, our way, and our worldview were such that none of us ever did what was right. Again, Paul doesn't say it's marred. He says no one, nothing, none of you ever did anything towards God. So my points on this page in the middle of the page are simple. I've already sort of said them. Number one, it is not merely that man sins, but that man sins because... He is a sinner. Number two, the effect of sin on the human race is just as God had told Adam and Eve, didn't he? You are going to die. What does that mean? Let's go on. Mankind is dead in their transgressions and sins. And this is the twofold concept of what we call total depravity and total inability. Let me explain. We use that phrase, total depravity, a lot, but let me see if I can add something to it. Every capacity of man, when I say capacity, mind, will, affections, the heart, whatever you want to call your internal being, every capacity of man has become spiritually polluted and dead towards God. The mind, the will, the affections, the spiritual sight, the spiritual hearing, the spiritual understanding are all dead. But here's the catch. Death is not annihilation, but rather separation, right? That is Every one of our capacities, according to Paul in the Old Testament, and more that Paul's going to say in Romans 9, 10, and 11, is simply this. Everything is polluted in such a way. And now comes the great drawing. The drawing that will change everything. (laughs) Some of you are like, oh, whatever. The most holiest man I've ever met. My, (laughs) thank you. Will, affections, okay. What Paul is telling us and we're about to jump into is simply this. Every one of us, all of our capacities are now quote-unquote dead towards God 
that in our minds, I'm going to make a triangle to represent the Trinity. Our minds do not understand. Our affections, we love ourselves. We're going to walk through that. We do not love what God loves. We don't want that. We don't follow God's path. We don't seek after him. And our wills are not free agents. They do whatever our mind believes and our affections desire. And we choose lots of free choices off the buffet of our fallen mind and affections. We're making free choices all day long that are uninformed, that are sinful. And in that pattern, this is the world of religion inside the bubble and the world, the world of profession and the world of choices. But inside that system of the fallen person, inside that system, there's no spiritual life or energy. The spirit still exists of the person, but they are not. They are separated from God. And they don't understand, they don't see. How then does anybody ever get out of that? So, total inability. Man does not have any ability to remedy their condition before God. That's what Paul just told us. Nobody seeks him. Nobody does this. So here's my little shtick on this at the bottom, if you'll bear with me. All men are totally depraved, and their wills are in bondage to their depraved minds and depraved affections or emotions. Let me stop. By the word depraved, when we hear somebody is depraved, we're like, worst possible person. Las Vegas Raider fan. Okay, for sure. That, that person, the worst possible human being on earth. Eagles fans. <laughs> See, it's, you know, Frank, it's all just levels of depravity. <laughs> um, when we use the word depraved, we typically mean the worst, vilest, you know, whatever. So a lot of us have uh, trimmed it down to total inability or pollution or corruption, total corruption. But all of that to say, that is, their minds or their wills are in bondage to their depraved minds and depraved affections or emotions. Men's wills are quote-unquote free to choose anything their minds believe and their affections desire. Unfortunately, the scriptures tell us that all men's minds are enemies of God and cannot be otherwise except through God's regenerative power. All scripture tells us that all men hate God. No one seeks after God. The net result is that while men are making free moral choices with their wills, they are only choosing off the buffet of their fallen, God-hating, non-understanding minds and affections, which will always inform their will to choose against the lordship and glory of God. Thus, all men are responsible for their choices freely made. Um, I always like to draw it, then read it, then draw it again. Again, what are we saying? Total depravity means what? Every capacity is fallen. There's, there's no one, the will is not, but the will is free from the fall. The will is living over here, outside of us. And it's free from the influence of the depravity. I get it. It's free. And it lives in holy box. And my will, my glorious will, 
was free so that it said, No bad mind, no desires of evil. I shall choose what is good. Is your will free? We're going to talk about that today. What we are saying, and I think what scripture is telling us is, no, your will will do what your mind and affections tell you. And total inability, I want to write it over there, means that there's no way to remedy this. There's no way to remedy it. Okay, next page. Remember, I like to tell you what I'm going to tell you, tell you, and then tell you again. Guess what? The snowman is right there again. (laughs) Now, people have made fun of my drawing in the past. Don't do that. You'll be out of class. (laughs) That's my guy. That's my guy right there. That's this guy come to life. The snowman of death. So what we're doing now is simply, as you're following, we're taking Paul's words, we're going through the reality that what's the effect on everyone ever born. But I started with this verse at the top. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. What inability is Jesus referring to? That's the point. When we talk about total inability, this is what Jesus is He's not doing a a discourse on total inability here. But when he says, you know that all you listening to me right now, not a one of you can come to me unless the Father enables you. That's what Paul's telling us too. No one is enabled. Something has to happen that's beyond our capacity. But, But you have to believe You're not able. What is the inability that Jesus is talking about? Well, I would suggest again, if we took a little more anatomy of sin, and we looked at the corpse of the dead person, here's what we would find. The little box that says the mind, let's do that quickly. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Most people stop there. Right? We know that. The unbeliever... Their mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. But the next words are the most important. Paul says, nor can it do so. The difference when you think of people and mercy and God and how he acts in salvation, if you just say, they will not. You know why people are not saved? Because they will not. That's true. But Paul goes farther in the backstory. They will not, because they cannot. Now we're going to get into the question then, is it fair? If I can't do something, right, then maybe it's not fair that God will hold me responsible. We have to define cannot, okay? Really, it's this. You can't can't hold something else. If your two hands are full, you cannot hold a third object, would be the idea. If you love yourself, and you hate God, you love in your mind and your affections the things you love, you have no room for God in your life. Now, people would say, yeah, but you could just put one of those down. Paul says, you won't. That's what the curse did. The curse made you Gollum. My precious. That's what the curse did. 
Everybody loves that little thing. They love themselves, they love their stuff, they love their world, they love the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and they have no intention of giving it up. And so the, we can, re, we can feel a lot, theologize all day about how this is compressed in there. The functionality of inability is you will never, unless God does something. Yes, ma'am? Do our prayers not work, but do our prayers help? Praying for our loved ones who are Good question. Do our prayers help uh, towards people becoming saved? You know, I think you already know by the way you asked the question that it's a yes and a no. Uh, all prayer is important. We're commanded to pray. God uses prayer as a means of accomplishing his eternal will. But God has an eternal will and decree that he's already determined what is going to happen. So our prayers never change God's eternal plan. Right? God, God doesn't say, man totally wasn't thinking about saving them. But when you came along, I finally figured it out, right? Right? You know? Now the plan makes sense. They get together like, thank God she prayed, right? Because we were lost in this. Okay, but on the other side, God in his goodness and God in his grace has made us in his image and he's made us image bearers and we are real and in real time and he made us care about people and the lost, and so our prayers are real. And God has somehow in his mystery used those prayers as means of saving people. Does he ever save anybody out without anybody praying? Yes, the thief on the cross. Okay, nobody in the crowd's praying, Lord, help this man see Jesus, right? So prayer is not necessary for salvations, nor is witnessing. Somebody can read a Bible or a track, right? But God uses, those are the normal means that God uses. Prayer and the witness of the gospel. How will they understand? How will they believe unless they've heard? And how will they hear unless someone goes and tells them? Romans 10. So, good. Good stuff. Well, we go a little farther here in 1 Corinthians 2 under the block, the mind. The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Why don't people believe the gospel? Because it's a spiritual matter. And they're dead spiritually. Dead people, generally speaking, generally speaking, do not care about what's going on around them. <laughs> I used to work in a hospital. And part of my job, I worked in the chemistry lab, but part of my job was to go down to the morgue once a week and do stuff. And I was always impressed <laughs> to stuff. <laughs> oh man, that left lots of doors open. The door of the mind is like, oh, that's bizarre. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, do, do official capacities that I was asked to do by the, the hospital. <laughs> Dude, I've never thought about that. Okay. And I'd go down to the morgue, and I was, I was always... Um, blown away or whatever that the people who worked closest to the dead in the morgue were completely like they didn't even think about it anymore and we see comedy routines and stuff but if you've never worked in a morgue or anything you walk in and they're eating lunch the guys are eating lunch and there's a dead body laying there and they're like hey what's up Dave and they're like this is all weird I'm leaving okay? <laughs> But they've come to a place where they realize the dead, while they want to give honor and all that, the dead person is, doesn't care. They don't care. 
For this lesson today, you have to go there. We were spiritually dead. So the idea that we can have services where we can attract dead people to believe in Jesus. The question is, what type of church do you want to be? If you believe people are totally dead, that only God can do anything, and that the word of God is the means by which he does it, God says, I save people through the foolishness of the gospel and foolishness of preaching. That's how I do stuff. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to save people. If that's the case, we should give them this. Because that's their only hope. Instead of candles and cool music and great lighting. Now listen, I don't mean let's make our service drab and stupid. Worst music possible. Come to Jesus, you know. And there's no lighting, it's terrible. I don't mean that. (laughs) Exactly. Have good music, have whatever, but don't think that we have to put the candles and all that so people will be attracted to the gospel. When you do attractionalism, whatever you attract them with, you're going to have to jack it up. It's like a drug. If you you attract them through a circus, next time it's got to be the Omni event. Then it's got to be, instead of Woodstock, Godstock. Okay, it's just got to get bigger and bigger, the drug. This matters what we think about this. If we believe that only God can save people, then we need to use the means by which God saves people and not try to think our little way of doing that. It will save us a lot of trouble. It really will. Yeah, Jose? It's just, um, you know, it just touches my heart so much that I'm just so grateful to the God, mm. grateful to the Lord for, for his salvation. Mm. You know, growing up as a Christian, I remember the young yeah. men and women that came up with me. They're no longer here. Yeah. They've turned back to the world, and it is so, you know, it's just so precious to me that the Lord has, has kept my faith. And Jose, I love that. I love the spirit of what you're saying. In preparation for this, again, um, it's, it deeply moves me that God would save us out of our recklessness. This, these pictures put us back to, we're, we're the prodigal son. We're the this. We're that picture in the Bible. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And then we can look at other people with mercy, right? You're just like, dude, that was me. That was totally me. Okay. Well, let me go to the top right and talk about spiritual blindness. I just want to make sure you know this person's dead. We're in the morgue, and you're like, no, 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 I bet they can see. <laughs> Don't do that. They can see you. All right, here's what it says. That's right. What's that? Is that why you didn't give him eyes? <laughs> That's right. He has no eyes. <laughs> now, though, very good. There's no eyes on here. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that'd be spooky, wouldn't it? Yeah, it'd be kind of. Okay. Uh, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe, we're told in John. Just think about that. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. Because Isaiah Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. You know, the, and I don't want to get in a long excursion on this, but you would think that this is Satan being spoken of. He has blinded their eyes, but it's actually God. Uh, This comes in the midst of a conversation and long, long story short in the Gospels where, you know, the Pharisees kept saying, no, and we don't believe in that. And finally, they do the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin. 
And in the context of the whole gospel narrative, you have to understand that the Jewish nation comes to a place through their leaders in which there's a formal rejection of Jesus as Messiah. And the declaration that Jesus is not only the false Messiah, but it's Satan in the flesh who's doing it. That was the declaration of the Pharisees. And Jesus says, basically, so on top of your blindness, because he'd already told them they were blind, is a judicial blindness, which is, there's no way back from this. This is, there's not even, we're not even going to talk about this anymore. But all of that to say. And this is the verdict, John 3 tells us. Light has come into the world. So everybody should be able to see. But men have loved darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. What about the affections, though? <clears throat> I don't hate God. I like God. God's my buddy. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, through my mind just came the picture in the morgue where I was doing stuff. I'm sorry. <laughs> If the world hates you, Jesus says, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obey my teaching, they'll obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, and they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. That is a rejection of Messiah. Now, however, they have no excuse, again, for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated both me and my father. And this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without a reason. C.S. Lewis does a good job with this point because when we think everyone hates God, what about the children? What about people who are like, God, I love you? C.S. Lewis says something like this. People don't know God enough to dislike him, and so they like God, the image of God in their mind. God is big, he's okay. But people are haters of God in that they don't choose God's glory. Uh, the difference between love and hate in this motif is this. It's not affections. It's not desiring, I like God. Some people like God in the sense, like God is big. But people, don't, people hate God in that they never choose his glory. And that's the motif. Okay, at the bottom of the page, just some more. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. You see that, the powerlessness, the inability. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Two things to think about that verse. I quote it all the time. I quoted it in our prayer, our prayer session this morning. Number one, Paul is saying, it's, it, it, he puts it in the permanent uh, now, and simply this, Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. Well, we weren't even there. What does Paul even mean? He, you know, you kind of think he died for us while we were sinning. He's not talking about individual sins. He's talking about being a sinner. Christ died for us even though we were sinners who could do nothing for him. And that's true in the past. It's true now. And then the summary, spiritually dead in the little box. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And then spiritual deafness. What if we preach well? What if we really get this gospel down? What if we memorize it, do a really good job? 
He who has ears, let him hear, Jesus said. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and now I'm here. I have not come on my own, but, I have, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. Here's the thing about the, the irony of thinking about, what about our preaching? We want to be as good in our preaching. We want to be as good in our evangelism as we can. But not because it either merits before God or is necessary for the salvation of others. I use the word necessary. You can get saved on a rather lousy gospel presentation. That's true. <laughs> More I said amen, right? Or, yeah, that's true. Um, and if you think about it this way, the lie that the belief of the system of the seeker service is, hey, it's up to us to be awesome so other people will believe. And if we get really awesome, people will be swayed to it. The lie I know is a lie because Jesus was the greatest preacher who ever lived and they didn't believe him. They heard Jesus and they didn't believe. How do we think if we get good at it, they're going to believe? Again, it's the word of God and the spirit of God that saves people. But be as good as you can. Trust God. All right. Page four. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. What I want to do with our remaining time is to begin to address, just briefly, the question of why does anyone ever believe then? And how does God bridge this gap? <clears throat> excuse me. Pardon me. It will not be conclusive. I don't mean to put everything here. The rest of the book of Romans addresses this. It's more of a, a, an introduction to the topic of whatever happened to the human race and how do we get out of it. And I am summarizing, I say at the top of page four, a selective summary, I don't summarize the whole book, of Tom Wells' book, Faith, the Gift of God, which I do by permission. I talked to Tom years ago and asked him, can I summarize your book? I like what it says. And so 90-something percent of the material you're about to see is Tom's essential ideas, and I throw some of my own stuff. But basically, it's a summary of that book for the purpose of addressing in small form. Why does anyone believe, then, if no one can? Okay? So if you'll go on that track with me for a few minutes before we close today, I want to do that because that's the logical extension of Paul's point here. So number one, the road of life. Unexpected turns. We're going along the road of life. We're not a believer. And then we turn a corner, as you will, and we come face to face with Jesus Christ in our story. And we have to admit there are many ways to Christ, but there's only one way to God. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. But we have to explain this moment. Why, when we met Jesus, why did we believe? Why did we believe? That's a crazy question, and it's the reality of why didn't your brother believe? Why didn't your sister? Why didn't your mom? Why didn't your dad? Why didn't your uncle? Why didn't your best friend from college? Why didn't your... Why is it that those other people did not believe, but you did? Because they weren't chosen before the foundation of the world. 
You know too much. <laughs> that is true. We get back in the origin story. Election will precede even this conversation. May I ask one quick question? Yes, ma'am. How would you recommend to evangelize to a person, even a son, who you talk with so much that he has a master's degree in theology? He, sure. He knows this. Sure. And so, of course, you would expect him to reply that, hey, if God is the one that has to give me the gift of repentance, that it would even lead me to salvation. Mm hmm he hasn't given it to me yet. I've searched him. I've looked. Mm -hmm. I've gone to church. I've read the Bible. But, you know, if what you're saying is correct, and I can't come, and yet we know that he's still exercising his right. free will. I mean, is there any, what, what right. would you recommend to uh, evangelize to a person that knows too much? Pray and fast. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Because there, there is no wording, right? Yeah, I know. That's our point. I've tried. Yeah, present the gospel to him. Live in front of him as yeah, a Christian. Right. Uh, love him. Uh, respect the fact, you know, engage it on respectful manners. Treat yes. him in the image of God. All those pieces go without saying, hopefully. Right. <clears throat> uh, beg God in his mercy. If, if he is not elect, he's not going to become a Christian, is what you're saying. That's right. But you recognize... Yeah. That in this room, even at Hope Bible Church, where our doctrinal statement says essentially that, mm -hmm. that doesn't mean everyone in the room embraces that. Right. That's a hard doctrine. You know what? On the flip and, side, I'm at yeah. peace with it because I finally have given up and realized that apart from mm -hmm. God's election and apart from Christ, I can't do anything. So I have now, finally, mm -hmm. after many years, mm -hmm. have peace because I trust God for His That's ultimate good. decision. That's good. That is an ultimately good con. That's, the, that's taking your theology to the right level. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm going to move on only because of time's sake, okay? It's a great point, and I would love to address it further, but I think it's probably a couple talks from now. But, but you're on the right path, uh, but you haven't heard my talk, so you're obviously in error in some way. <laughs> Thank you. That's good. Point two, it, it embraces the question, the, is faith the gift of God? We get to that. If someone believes, but no one can, and I believed, but I know that I'm not the guy, then this faith thing must have come from outside of myself, but how can that be reconciled, and what is faith? You embraced, others rejected. What do we mean by embraced? You trusted in Jesus Christ. Why did you do this? Why did you turn to Christ? You put your faith in him. Is this kind of faith a gift of God? Here's the dilemma. Mr. Jones and Mr. Smith. Has God given Mr. Jones something to move him to believe? Something that God has withheld from Mr. Smith, who remains an unbeliever? Who makes a difference, Mr. Jones, Mr. Smith, or God? The answer bears on our whole understanding of sin and salvation and grace and the character of God. And what does Jones have that Smith lacks anyway? Well, that's number three. What kind of man is inclined to turn to Christ? Common sense? A wise man. Yeah. Mr. Jones has wisdom. He has a fear of the Lord. Paul just told us there's no fear of the Lord. Not saving fear of the Lord. There's fear in conscience, but there's no fear of the Lord that leads to salvation in which one says, I am undone as a sinner. I repent. I give myself to you. Please save me. So what does he have? Scripture says of Jesus, he has no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Isaiah 53. I came to Jesus because he was so amazingly lovely. <laughs> yes, he is. 
But you would have to have the kind of knowledge as a Christian to understand what that means. And then there is no one who understands, no one who seeks God, yet some believe. This is that paradox of sorts. Now, on this next page and a half, I simply go back through with lots more verses, the snowman and the anatomy of sin. It's going to be pedantic. Remember, I'm telling you what I was going to tell you, now I'm telling you, now I'm telling you again. But at the bottom of page four, just simply to say, again, with the affections, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. We looked at that verse already. Page five. The mind is unable to be subject. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. We've already read those. We are spiritually blind. Jesus said, leave them. Leave them. Leave them. They are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into the pit. He's speaking about the Pharisees. He says to his disciples and followers, leave them. Yeah, but we want to keep witnessing to these people. They're blind. Yeah, but we're going to make them unblind. They're blind. Are you a surgeon, a spiritual surgeon? No. I just have light. I have the Bible. I can... The light. Right. But you can't fix the blindness. God has to do something. Spiritually deaf. We've already looked at that. Let's add these two. We are slaves to sin. Oh, it gets worse. To the Jews who had not who had believed him. Now this is a long passage, but the point of it is had externally believed, had said, We're followers. But Jesus is saying, Oh, really? Jesus said, If you hold to my teachings, you really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be free? Man, that's revisionism, as we said last week. Right? You guys never heard of the Exodus? (laughs) Or Roman rule? Okay. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. They said, we've never been slaves to anyone. He says, you're slaves of sin. No, we're not. We're free people. You're slaves of sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs in it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Oh yeah, but we're good. We can at least get out of this. No, you're slaves to Satan. To open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Jesus says, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and now I'm here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you as we read before? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. These are hard words. <clears throat> you realize that after this, his disciples left him, except for a few. They're like, that's hard to listen to. And again, we've said they're spiritually dead, but we haven't read all of Ephesians 2. Let me do that. As for you, you were dead. 
in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. Wait a minute. He used dead and alive in the same verse. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. Dead people who are alive we call zombies. That's what Ephesians 2 is telling us. That was who we were. We were dead to God. We were alive to the world in wickedness. It's a zombie movie. It's a zombie apocalypse. Run! All right, back to it. All of us also lived among them at one time. Paul wants you to know this. We're back to the point of this. Maybe we who were elect, because now we're Christians, we know we're elect, whatever that might mean, Romans 9. We who are saved, maybe we were different though. We were more religious. Maybe we were more open. Maybe we were different than the people who were around us. Paul's going to disabuse us of that. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up, resurrection, with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's a gift of God not of works, so that no one can boast. We were powerless, as we read in Romans 5, while we were yet sinners and we were powerless. And man is without excuse for his condition, as we've said about a thousand times. So what's the dilemma then? Man's condition is terminal. He's a prisoner to sin and Satan. He's blind, he's deaf, he's darkened, he's hateful towards God, and he's dead spiritually, completely powerless to respond to the gospel. But doesn't man have a free will? (laughs) Certainly there's a hero within. There's a spark of divinity. Just a little Jesus lover inside of me. And I have to get... What about free will? Let me just do this really quick because we're going to address this when Paul addresses it more fully. What do we mean by free will? And I said last week, or two weeks ago, Free Willy was a good movie. But um, when we say will, we're talking about the ability to choose the power of choice. So is man's will free? Again, is it free from God? When we say free from, the question in, in mind is this. Is your will free from influence? Now, see... Some people think when we say man does not have a free will, they imagine what we mean is that God wills through them. That God takes your will and puts it aside and says, I believe in me. Like, as if your will did not count. That's not about freedom of will. You're making free moral choices, but they're not free from God's influence. But some people believe that God cannot influence the will of a person because it would be overcoming their free will. 
and therefore that person would not be totally free in this universe. We'll come back to that. Is your will free from influence by Satan? Not according to scripture. Is it free from your heredity or your flesh, your sin nature? No, we've just been reading all of that. Is it free from the way your mind thinks? You can choose stuff that you don't believe in. No, your mind is you. Or your affections. How about your IQ? That has something to influence your will. I mean, there are Raiders fans, right? (laughs) What about gravity? My will is not influenced by gravity. I can jump from an airplane at 35,000 feet without a parachute, and I'll be just fine because I've willed it. No, gravity's going to influence your will, okay? There's, there's going to be, there's going to be. And then what about environment? Is the will of man free from what he himself is? The point is this. Your will is simply the chooser, the choosing capacity you have. It's not a, another human being. You don't have a human being out there called Dave 2. And then the rest of us is a mess, but it's a dumpster fire in there. But again, and will, the will is awesome. The will is simply the capacity to choose that your mind and affections already run. Same all that. So at the bottom of the page, Matthew 12, make a good tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. Now I want to stop here. Because Jesus is about to go on and say, so good fruit comes out of good trees and bad fruit. People say, see, people are good. Uh, read the first verse again. Make a tree good. And its fruit will be good. There's no good trees in the theology Jesus is giving. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man, made good, brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings evil out of the evil stored up in him. Next page. But maybe my will can escape the way I think. For as you think in your heart, so are you. And can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. What is scripture telling us? There are certain characteristics we have, whether it's our skin color or a leopard spots, that cannot be changed by willing it. That's all. The will does not change these things. The will is either one of these three things. It's part of what the man is. That's what I'm suggesting. It's part of what the man does. It's the choices they make. But that's what Jesus already said. Whatever you think in your heart, you are that person. Or it stands between the man and the action. You say, no, 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 that's an action, and I'm this, but my will is standing in between. Well, the problem is then you don't have free will because it's, it's on its own. You don't have a free will. You have a thing called the will of freedom. Okay, not trying to be funny anymore. The will makes choices in relation to the input it receives, but natural man's mind is darkened, his affections are set on self, sin, and Satan. He's spiritually dead, so to change would require him to become a new man. So let me close with these four things. How does life come into here? God makes you alive. Regeneration which makes the mind able and the affections able to desire Christ and the gospel 
and to believe the gospel and be saved. And with your own freed will, quote unquote, you will believe, I'm drawing all kinds of stuff up here, you will believe the gospel, but you will not do so until God makes you alive. I don't know if I just lost my volume. <laughs> but I will keep going anyway. So at the bottom of page seven, my battery must have died. It's okay, let's keep going. We'll finish it up. You must be born again, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that one can boast. No one can boast. So how does God bestow this gift of faith? <clears throat> is it like on a Christmas tree, you put a bulb on the tree? All right? You're, you're dead, and God just puts a faith thing on you, and, he, and you're like, I believe, the, the bulb believes. No, he changes the tree. There are four pictures that I want to express as we close that should give you an idea how God saves dead people. First of all, he does surgery. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Jesus is a great physician. I'm going to take out that heart and give you a new one. You had nothing to do with that. Secondly, a new birth. Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know, this is not a command, right? Jesus says you must be born again to Nicodemus. It's not a command. You can't be born again. Jesus is making a point of fact. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he explains to him, you know how like the wind blows through the trees and you can't tell the wind's there until the leaves move? So is being born again. How do you know that the leaf... How do you know that the Spirit of God has moved you to be born again? Believes of faith. Faith is an effect, not a cause. And then resurrection. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. And finally, one of my favorite pictures, the blind man. Even if our gospel is veiled, is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Christ's sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And we always have to remember, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Let me pray.